the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is Welcome to Machine Gun Conscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we're sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's guests, drop us a buck a month at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Today we have with us our good friend, the infinitely talented, what should we call you, Jack Paul Sartre. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> always uh, of always other fame. Do you want to share your whatever whatever it is? So on Twitter, I am Jack Paul Sart, all one word, and then my musical project is always other. Although it's all and then two V's instead of a W. Other that at is taken. So those are the spaces I occupy, and then you can find my music Spotify everywhere else under always other. I'm excited to to be talking talking with you guys about this uh, very short but uh, <laughs> technical and dense book we had you on because we wanted to talk about john paul sartre's uh transcendence of the ego a sketch for a phenomenological description and it's one of his earliest writings correct yeah so it's it's 1937 it says 37 in the introduction but when i was reading annie cohen Salal's book on sartre it says it was actually originally published in 36. Oh, yeah, it's not a big deal, but okay. it's just something I found out. <laughs> and right. I trust, uh, but Sarah <laughs> Richmond, who wrote the introduction to this work, is a Sartre scholar. And of course, she translated Being in Nothingness back in 2019, which is a, a blessing. And I respect her immensely for it, as well as Annie Cohen Law is another really great scholar of Sartre. She's written several books on his work. and her biography on him is fantastic. And I go to it all the time whenever I'm trying to look for a historical context of what Sartre was working on, which this, like you said, is one of his earliest published works. We were talking about some of the other, uh, another book, the Emotions book was written around the same time, like 36, 37. So basically, this is the product of, in the early 30s, Sartre and Beauvoir meet with uh, Raymond Aron and famously over supposedly apricot cocktails or something. Okay, and he some starts, apricot brandy. Nice. There yeah. you go. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so he starts telling them about this thing called phenomenology and about Husserl. Right. And he explains that the way a phenomenologist would interpret or look at an apricot cocktail is different from you know, some of the ways classical philosophy would. And to keep it very simple, as my understanding, when you view something, even in a physical space, you're not necessarily viewing it in complete totality. Because when you look right. at something, you're looking from a perspective. Mm -hmm. There were 
multiple multitudes of perspectives the to be profile. looking at it. Yeah. And so that's kind of what he's describing to Sartre. And Sartre is just like, oh, this is perfect. This is exactly what I'm interested in. So he goes to Germany for several years to study Husserl and I, I think work with Husserl to some degree. And it's not until like the early 40s that I think he really discovers Heidegger, which is interesting to say the least of the timing. But we're really just focused on the on the Husserl here with this book. Husserl, the most under-mentioned, I think, at least contemporarily, right? You never hear about him unless it's on Sopranos and you hear <laughs> one of the guys say that, uh, you know, sorry, he freaking he took it off from uh, Husserl and Heidegger. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He is a big name, though, in um, in SPEP, right? The Society for Phenomenology and Existential Philosophy. They have a whole, like, there's a whole publishing industry behind Husserl's work, right? That he's still got a lot of unpublished stuff that hasn't, at least in English, maybe it's all out in German now, but it's hard. Uh, I'm not sure. A lot of stuff that was left unpublished after his death. And yeah, he famously influenced Heidegger, who did his own thing, but he also influenced Derrida. So if you're, if you're big early Derrida buffs, you might hear more about Husserl. But yeah, so it's interesting that Sartre goes to Germany, you know, because unceremoniously he'll be back in Germany, right? Yeah. In a prisoner of war camp in the next decade for World War II. Yeah, that's right. That's like, I want to say around 44, 45, something like that. He's in a POW camp for about nine months until he manages to escape. I think by, you know, there's that old family guy bit where they're talking about Canadian prisons and he's just like, you know, oh, I'm just going to go out and go do something. And, they, and then the prison guard is just like, okay, be back by nightfall. And he's like, <laughs> okay. And he just leaves. Yeah, <laughs> and apparently that's kind of what Sartre did. He said he needed new spectacles, new glasses or something. And they go. were just like, yeah, go for it, man. Go get them. Come back, I guess. It was something really silly like that. But I've got to return some videotapes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, yeah uh, it's it's triumph of the will i think was the was the title he had to take back so in 36 or so 37 wh whichever yep. he writes this essay which we can call a book it's mm -hmm. a sketch it seems like he's already writing nausea his first novel which is 38 yes because yes. you know not to anticipate or go out of order but there is this moment where he's talking about Consciousness is always sort of outside. It's this kind of tearing away. It's this bursting forth out into the world. It's always in the world. And that's how intentionality works, right? You know, intentionality sort of posits and grasps objects outside of it because consciousness is always consciousness of something, right? Which is like the loosest yes. definition of intentionality. And it's, he uses the example of the, well, he uses an example of the tree. That's in nausea. <laughs> is that in ego as well? You know what? I think I'm conflating his little essay in 39 on intentionality. But he, oh, so maybe, okay. maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he doesn't talk about it in, in this work. But for example, the cold open Cooper read about the train. Yes, that's we very nausea. We can kind of think about the train in terms of the tree. Is it nausea or no exit where he has the quote about hell as other people? No exit. No, yeah. that's it. Okay, that's it. And yeah. Jack and I have gone over this line a lot, which is very famous, obviously, for reasons. It's a very, very spectacular way to end the play with this last line. And mm -hmm. I was kind of telling him that the word he uses isn't other people, it's others. Right. It's this interesting question about whether the others are people 
or the others are that which is other than consciousness, so to speak. It's kind of left ambiguous, but it's translated that the ambiguity gets lost in English. Based on the play, you can see that that's not a bad reading. It's just yeah. that you have to make that choice to add a little bit more emphasis in the English where you lose some of the ambiguity. It's, it's always these, these turning points. But yeah, I guess that would be the, the thing that no exit is a good exemplification of the transcendence of the ego, right? Because the no exit in the hell, there are no mirrors. There's no suitable way to perform this reflective, reflected act whereby the ego or the I can be taken as an object. We're sort of only out there for others. And maybe that's a good way of talking about the exemplification of his thesis. That's incredible that you just pulled that together because that's very astute. I want your reactions. I mean, like, so it sounds like we're kind of seeing some of the bread trails in his literary work that he's still ruminating on these philosophical problems that motivate him. No, absolutely. And we actually talked about this. Will kind of had spoken about how the philosophical and the literary sort are necessarily intertwined. Mm -hmm. And you can pull from a no exit and see a reading of it or more to relate with it to being a nothingness and stuff like that. So I think that's that's brilliant the way that even his plays and his fiction does work out his philosophy. And all of these questions are just permeating well into the early 40s to the mid, maybe somewhat even to the late 40s. But that's interesting because he doesn't talk too much. And I don't want to get too ahead here, but he doesn't talk too much about the other and the transcendence of the ego, you know, capital other. Of course, in being in nothingness, he has a whole subchapter on pretty much taking solipsism to task. And the basic point that he's making there is that a major issue for solipsists is the issue of the capital other. But pull it back a little bit. One of the main points that Sartre's trying to make with this text is two major disagreements with Husserl, one of which being that the ego isn't this thing to be discovered inside of oneself, but it is a inhabitant of the world of a sort. And um, that, that's been hard for me to wrap my head around. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I'll, I'll just preface all of this as saying that this text gave me a lot of hell. <laughs> yeah. It's like trying to uh, read fucking Lacan too, because it deals with a lot of the same kind of fucking reflexive consciousness shit. Well, in the, the mirror yeah. stage, ego, or the, the, the mirror stage, the entrance of the ions and the symbolic that Lacan writes is around the same time period when he first publishes it. Yeah. Uh, Mid 30s or so. I'll have to check on the, the date later, but it's around this kind of same time and it deals with some of the same issues, but in totally different dynamics. But I think that Sartre would, would understand Lacan's usage of the imaginary here in terms of sort of the, the image that we see in the mirror and spontaneously we take it up, you know, the child, the infant takes it up as a sort of a formed, totalized whole. Right. One of the things that he kind of says is the ego is not the real totality of consciousness, because that would be as, as contradictory or as absurd as thinking of a real totality of actualization, because that would be a kind of theological, ontotheological yeah, notion he, of God as everything. As like You would the, be a monad if mm -hmm, that were the case. Right. Right? I think he even says that. It's, it's yeah, he does. Which was okay. really interesting. Well, con just contra Sterner, 
and I'm not sure if Sterner would necessarily, I don't know if Sterner's I or creative nothing is transcendental or not. I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sure, but they do share it. There's definitely some, at least agreement in terms of how they talk about the ego. I pulled a passage that I'll read later, but I actually wanted to go back. I've always thought it was kind of amusing that, you know, the famous quote from no exit as hell as other people. It's very, at least on its face, it's a very cynical sounding proclamation or like take away from the work. And yeah. someone like Sterner, who is the egoist guy, recognizes that enjoyment requires an other. So I yeah. thought that was always kind of a funny, you know what I mean? People jump to the conclusions about Sterner, I, I think. That, yeah, that, that, that enjoyment would just be right, my you, own that, property. Right. That, yeah. That like you're okay. like you're some kind of monad that develops its own kind of joy or whatever. A more solipsistic type of take. And I don't think that's I think Sterner's eye or whatever is definitely situated within the social. Go ahead, Jack. You were going to say something. Yeah. Yeah. So so the quote, Taylor, you were just referring to actually had that one in my notes because it it really kind of caught me off guard, I guess. He says, the ego is not, well, I think I paraphrase it actually, but it's on page 39. He says, the ego is not real totality of consciousness, but the ideal unity of all states and action, which there were so many points where I was reading this text and there were moments where I was like, really, I don't even know what the hell's going on. But there are also moments where I'm like, oh man, this is just making me reconsider all of my existence, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was one of those quotes where I was just like, oh man, he even has this bit. He talks about how the mind of a sorts kind of continues to do things that you try to force it not to do. So one of, yes. one of the examples is he says, I want to sleep or I do not want to think about that anymore. And I was like, man, that's really fucking weird. Have you ever considered, why can't I just stop thinking about something? Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't call it the mind. He, he calls it the yeah. will, at least in my that's translation. Right. It's when we try to will something, like when we try to will not to think about something that, you know, it sort of forces itself upon us. You know, when we try to will ourselves to sleep in a certain way, that doesn't work. Insofar as he says also that like the ego, whenever we try to look, whenever we try to like take it as an object, it's always kind of sliding from our vision. I think that his point being sort of that insofar as we will something, we have to kind of trick ourselves. Like, you know, mm -hmm. one of the ways that people fall asleep instead of just thinking constantly, I, I sleep, I want to sleep, I want to sleep, they, they count or they put on white noise or, you know, the meditation, these ways of lulling the mind to sleep because willing it implies a kind of vigilance, right? And so it's self-defeating when we, when we try to will not to will or not to think. <laughs> Could you almost say that what you do in that situation actually is, and he kind of talked about this at the end is you remove the I, right? Yeah. You remove right. yourself from the situation to gaze upon something else or to become conscious of something else. There were like a couple major things that I took from this text when I read it years ago and prep for being a nothingness that I still kind of hold on to now, which we've already touched on the Husserlian like maxim of all consciousness is consciousness of something. And then the other big things for me with this text was talking about reflective and unreflective or non-reflective yeah. consciousness. I'm trying to think of an easy way to kind of break those things down and without, I suppose, thinning it out too much. The way I remember looking at it 
was reflective consciousness was when I am using that I language, right? Or when I am considering that I am doing something or saying something. And then unreflective consciousness is, is essentially in action or just operating as I am without being aware that I am doing something. And I don't remember where it is in this work or if it's maybe something I just pulled from somewhere else. But I remember, you know, when you're washing dishes, you're not thinking I am washing the dishes. You're just yeah. doing the thing, obviously. And so that's kind of like a good example of unreflective consciousness. Does that read correct to you, Taylor, with your reading of it or... I use the example of unreflective consciousness is when I am, when I am fucking, <laughs> when I'm fucking, I'm not thinking about the act of fucking. If I start to take myself as an object in the act, in the moment itself, if I start to intrude my consciousness as a kind of perspective on my fucking, it becomes absurd. It becomes it loses that spontaneity that he's talking about. He's kind of saying that about willing too, right? Where willing is a part and parcel of the ground of spontaneity. And once we try to reflect on it or try to master it and give it a certain direction, we've kind of cut that spontaneity. We've cut that uh, intimacy, so to speak. So when I think about myself as fucking there's a sense in which I start to lose my erection or something like that, right? Because you're out of the moment. The other thing would be like, and Cooper, you, you would know exactly what I'm talking about here. When um, playing a sport or, or Jack, when you're playing the drums, right? If you're in your head too much and you're, you're, you're overthinking things and you're thinking about your body and you're thinking about and you're not just performing the muscle memory, there's a sense in which you're already going to strike out. You know, you're already going to get your pant leg caught on the, <laughs> on the, uh, the kick drum. Those are yeah. kind of ways that I think about this notion of reflective and unreflective. And there are there are places where reflective consciousness is not only necessary, but but vital, but there are a lot of places where it actually gets in the way of performing certain actions, right? I mean, the, the running towards the train, you are in that moment and it is a vital necessity that you catch that train. If you're thinking too much about that, you get kind of lost back into the anguish and the anxiety of the very possibility of losing the train when that that can't be your first concern, right? That's not the problem yep. facing you at the moment. The problem facing you at the moment isn't this rational thing where it's like, oh my God, what if blah, blah, blah. Because you would then start to freeze your freedom, right? You'd start to freeze your, your very possibility of catching the train or fucking or hitting the baseball or playing the drums. That's poignant. The way I had even kind of related it to, of course, you mentioned anxiety. is like if anyone, if you've ever had an anxiety or a panic attack, or you've ever just been really anxious, really, you become so consciously aware of the fact that you are anxious, or yeah. maybe it's a specific event you have to be worried about, that it's like your brain is at limited capacity. Yeah. Like it can't process information. You can't do things like you normally would because you are so one track minded so mm -hmm. com confounded by this one particular thing or, or whatever it may be and um of course he, he talks about anxiety like towards the end of the book which i'm sure we can get to um eventually, only briefly though right you know yeah. he only really briefly mentions it i think he uses mm -hmm. the word twice if i counted correctly you know i think of the meme of like oh god is this sativa you know and you know you wanted the body high but you got the mind high and then you get 
you get paranoid, <laughs> which is literally like yeah. you are outside of your of your mind, right? And you start to kind of like when, in the Schraber case, when Freud talks about the formation of, of a persecuting glance at the superego that is judging us, there is a sense in which it is terrifying and stultifying and and it limits our ability to navigate, I suppose what Sartre would later call our facticity and our transcendence, right? There's an indication of that in the text where he says something about how, I'm trying to remember if I put it right, but there's something about the ego and its goal, its existence at all, its purpose is in a certain way to mask our spontaneity. This is on page 27. I'm not sure if we have the same pagination, Jack. I think I have the same translation as you, but okay. on, on page 27, the bottom paragraph, mm-hmm. he says, perhaps indeed the essential function of the ego is not so much theoretical as practical. If I've I have pointed out, after all, that it does not bind closely together the unity of phenomenon that is limited to reflecting an ideal unity, whereas real concrete unity has long been achieved. But perhaps its essential role is to mask from consciousness its own spontaneity. And it goes on. But I thought that that was a good indication of where Sartre might develop this theme at length later on. And he gives the example of the woman who, when the husband is away, she'll go to the window. She's afraid she's going to start calling out to the men like a streetwalker, right? Like a prostitute, Mm -hmm. hailing them to to provide services. And Mm -hmm. Sartre Sartre tries to read this example as explaining away certain neurological symptoms that psychoanalysis tries to explain in its own way. But for him, it's this question of the sort of infection of my spontaneous freedom and then my ability, my ego's ability, whether it be on my upbringing or whatever, to, to try to master or mask that, that spontaneity in consciousness. Very similar to the vertigo effect, too, in a different vein. Which I want to say he maybe even mentions at one point or another, which... I know we've touched on. Um, he says he the word vertigo. He does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cooper, do I don't you want to you want to control F for vertigo? But go ahead, Jack. With respect to vertigo, what I remember of that is that you know it's the French phrase "le peltavie" is something like that, right? Which so I it's think the he, same example where he uses that term. Yeah, the yeah. Example of the woman. And he's referring to, which he refers more explicitly in being a nothingness to Kierkegaard, which is the quote, anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. Mm, okay. And with yeah. Le V, it what that translates to is the call of the void. And basically what he's describing and in, in being a nothingness is the vertigo is a is like it's not a fear of falling, it's a fear of you deciding to let yourself fall or to even jump. It's right. a fear of the fact that you have the freedom in yeah. that moment to do what you want. And I think that's just kind of, like you said, kind of just building from this basis with the example of the woman, which is, is very similar, but it's not as um, as fully put together, maybe. That's interesting because we were, in the episode we were last released on Anti-Oedipus, we're talking a lot about coding and Decoded flows, and that's one of the examples I used was in decoded flows, there's a lot more freedom of becoming than there is in a heavily coded socius. The price you pay is the anxiety of not knowing 
what to become. There's definitely a whole lot of that of start like trying to deal with what exactly is the self or the I that philosophy really is always trying to point to and figure out. And what does that identity look like? And that is kind of just like one of those core issues for him that he that he works through at least in some degree within this within this book. Yeah. I like that passage a lot. And, 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 <laughs> you, see, you see with this example that he gives of the young bride fearing that she has this freedom, the spontaneous freedom that she can't necessarily control that exceeds her own boundaries, her own will to become a, a street walker, to become a prostitute. We see that in the end of the conclusion where Sartre kind of says, look, if we, if we can bracket, if we can do the epoche and bracket out the ego from consciousness and show that it's not some inner recess or that for an existential psychology, at least, that the ego should be able to be taken as an object. And it may not be as clear as it would be if it were mine, but that's no less problematic. Then we could develop this positive ethics and politics. That's what preoccupies him for the rest of his life, right? Not just being in nothingness, yep. but in the critique of dialectical reason. I'm wondering if this corrective to Husserl and this, this notion that, well, the transcendental ego, the pure ego, actually that needs to be bracketed in order to access this transcendental field of impersonal consciousness, because he's still in the realm of consciousness. We're not yet with Deleuze or whatever and pre-individual singularities <laughs> and all that, but we're, we're taking a step mm -hmm. towards him. I think what Sartre, by correcting Husserl, it seems like the actual adversary isn't Husserl necessarily. It's the same phenomenology's rigor and it's things the, to the things themselves, right? As he kind of says, it's not this, it's not this lofty idealism. It's actually out in the world. I think part of his polemic is psychoanalysis. I think mm -hmm. that he's he's, I mean, like he kind of makes it clear, but he doesn't straightforward say that this is a less to me, it's less a polemic against Husserl and more of this polemic for Husserl against Freud. That's interesting. And kind of calling back, I know you brought up Lacan. Lacan and Sartre, I know they had a relationship in the 30s, in fact, because Lacan, Sartre ended up seeing Lacan. I don't know if it was for the crab incident, Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But it was one of those situations where Sartre was having some form of mental duress and he sees Lacan for a time. <laughs> so they had a relationship. I believe there's a picture of Sartre, Lacan, Camus, and Beauvoir at a performance of The Flies, which mm. is an old, old play of Sartre's that's in the 40s. But I believe Lacan's in that picture and um, one or two other philosophers. Also, I think Picasso is in that picture. Maybe I'm just Makes making sense. shit up at yeah. this point. But <laughs> no, Lacan, no, Lacan so. was Picasso's personal physician. Ah, okay. Well, there you go. That, yeah. that tracks for sure. But I love that image of Sartre and Camus and Beauvoir and all of them, all of these unwieldy and unlikely friends. <laughs> it's a very strange picture. But yeah, and of course... What Sartre tries to do in being in nothingness, there you go. What he tries to do in being in nothingness is try to develop his own form of, of psychoanalysis. I mean, he has like the last 100 something pages is devoted to this existential psychoanalysis that Sartre's right. trying to develop and deal with. And I guess with, um, again, talking to, about Freud and psychoanalysis, one of the major pitfalls of this book, I think Taylor, you and I have touched on this before, is 
for sorry, he flatly says there is no unconscious. Uh, or at least it's he, like a crutch or it's it's some kind of interpretive yeah. crutch. Or he even says that it seems to, with the unconscious, the question of reflective consciousness or where the ego is situated is merely pushed back another step. For him, it doesn't really solve the, the questions he's posing. I know some people have had had contentions with that because they're like, well, where's the unconscious? <laughs> All of that stuff. And it's actually funny. There's an interview, Sar Gibbs. It's, I think it's called Sarge at 70. And the interviewer is just like, hey, um, what's up with the lack of an unconscious in your work? And I think he expounds on it more and being a nothingness. What was your experience with Freud at that time? And Sartre basically just, I just hadn't read a whole lot of Freud. I was kind of at that point still developing my research of psychoanalysis, psychology and all that stuff. To pull back to this text a bit more, of course, there's another big theme in this book which is Descartes, which I'm surprised we haven't even mentioned up to this point, the fucking Cogito, which is constantly referenced to. And of course, it's also constantly referenced to and being a nothingness. He does some interesting stuff with it. There is a quote that isn't quite up that alley. Here it is. So this is right before the conclusion. This is in my translation. Hopefully it should be the same for you. It's uh, page 42. He says, a reflective grasp of spontaneous consciousness as a non-personal spontaneity would need to be achieved without any anterior motivation. It is always possible de jour, but remains quite improbable or at least extremely rare in our human experience. In any case, as I said above, the I that appears on the horizon of the I think is not given as a producer of conscious spontaneity. Consciousness is produced over against it and moves towards it, comes to meet it. This is all that can be said. And I think later in the text, he almost says, I want to remove the I from the cogito entirely. (laughs) My I indeed is no more certain for consciousness than the I of the other man. It is simply more. That's not the quote I was looking for, but- um, No, but that's that's part of it though. Yeah. (laughs) What, what What do you make of that? I think that for Sartre, this is, I mean, it's logical that we move to this next because it does seem like he's still kind of saying if the I is internal to consciousness and is responsible for unifying it rather than consciousness, as he says, being absolute like Spinoza's substance and only limits itself. If the I is responsible, there is a kind of activity that really, if we start to peel away at it, it doesn't make sense. And you either make the I the author of its spontaneity, which doesn't really make sense if we start to actually do some of these thought experiments that he's doing, or you turn the I instead into the passive unity of an unconscious. And I think for him, when we say that the I think, that Kant's I think, or even Descartes' cogito, the I doubt, when we start to say that it's it should be possible for the I think to accompany any of its states, blah, 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 which is how he starts the essay, I think his answer is that, yes, but only insofar as we reach the plane of reflective and reflective consciousness. It's only on the plane of the reflective consciousness that we can say, ah, the I, the I accompanies thinking. Because he says somewhere that is Descartes, I think, I doubt, is it talking about the activity itself at that moment, or is it not merely describing the enterprise of doubting? 
And I think for him, it's only the latter because it takes this other, this anterior retrospective moment where I had doubted to put the eye there instead of it being this, this emergence of spontaneity. And I think that part of this, he gets at a little bit here with this notion about, about how, you know, states become linked to, to consciousnesses based on uh, emanation and this question mm-hmm. about this magical link between the ego and its uh, qualities. You know, I think for him that you have to kind of put it in this language unless you want to, again, conflate these things, right? You want to conflate the real unity of consciousnesses that doesn't always have an eye versus the eye that sort of emerges out of the reflective process. I think I got the quote maybe you were looking for. But as the order is reversed by consciousness Mm -hmm. that imprisons itself in the world in order to flee from itself, consciousnesses are given as emanating from states and states as produced by the ego. And then a little bit later on, he says that really cool quote. That is why man is always a sorcerer for man. Yeah. (laughs) And for himself. Yeah. Which is a nice um, addition. And I think, again, I can't remember exactly where this is in the text, but to some degree when he's talking about not his perception of the I, but maybe the Cartesian I or whatever it may be, is that it's actually producing an essence which precedes existence. It's almost this thing that that is there before you reach it or before you even become what you are. And there's that great quote on page 51, the world did not create, this is kind of moving forward, yeah. but the world did not create the me, the me did not create the world. They are two objects for the absolute impersonal consciousness. And it is through that consciousness that they are linked back together. Yeah. And that was another one of those quotes where I was just like, oh, fuck off. <laughs> that's incredible. <laughs> you know, I was like, damn, that was. Well, that's really- <laughs> another statement of his polemic against solipsism. I think that his polemic against solipsism, he finds perhaps wrongly, perhaps perhaps rightly, with, with a right intention, he perhaps finds in the notion of the unconscious one last recess for this ancient and sort of insidious argument from solipsism. That perhaps in the unconscious, what he sees is the ugly monster of solipsism rearing its head again. Because if I have an yeah. unconscious and you have an unconscious, and Cooper has an unconscious, and everybody's got their little unconsciouses, and they are not only not accessible to me as objects, but can only be interpreted symbolically in this latent manifest way, and I can only do that to myself, I am just as far removed from myself, then there's this sense in which everything gets murky, and the argument against solipsism becomes murky, and becomes in jeopardy, that solipsism starts to sound legitimate again. I think that one of the ways that Sartre attacks solipsism is this notion where my consciousness, insofar as I can say it to be mine, it may be to some extent more lucid than my consciousness of Peter's states, his feelings, whatever, insofar as he articulates them, and we can take them both as an object, but they're nevertheless, neither is any more certain. Does come back to this question of certainty and saying that I can easily miss 
recognize, and this is Lacanian shit, right? Kind of, but I can easily misrecognize my, when I say I hate Coop, I hate Jack. And then a moment later, I reflect and say, I didn't mean that. You know, there's a way in which the certainty of my, we can call it mood, but the certainty of my state at the time, this quality of hatred that I feel in my revulsion, there's a sense in which I am no more certain of that. If hatred is this kind of ongoing state and applies this past, it implies this potentiality towards the future actualization. The best I can say is like, I, there's consciousness of hate at this moment. That's like as certain as I can get. And, and it's revealed in this feeling of revulsion or disgust or whatever it is. But insofar as I say that, that I hate, it implies this ongoing feeling in the future. And yet, nevertheless, hatred as a state subtends my consciousness and is immersed in it. And I'm not always reflecting on it. And mm-hmm. so there is no necessary guarantee or certainty that either that state will continue to exist later or that when I reflect, I was correct about that, that feeling, right? It's, it is this interesting thing about fleeing into the world, consciousness fleeing from itself into the world and misrecognizing itself in this mirroring that's going on. And I think that that's also a, a kind of, if not a full refutation of solipsism, because he doesn't drop the subject, as you said, he brings it back up and being a nothingness, feels like he's got to mobilize other attacks against it. But this notion that how can I say that I, as a solipsist, am the only, my consciousness is real, everyone else is either just puppets or just an emanation from my consciousness, if I can barely even make sense of my own <laughs> ego and its states and the actions of which I am supposedly the author, right? So there's a sense in which I can know better know myself than know you. Right here on 45, a consciousness can conceive of no other consciousness than itself, sort of relating back to what you're saying. But I do have the, um, the bit here. If Peter and Paul are both speaking about Peter's love, for instance, it is no longer true that the one is speaking blindly and by analogy of what the other grasps fully. They are speaking of the same thing. They doubtless grasp it by different procedures, but these Mm -hmm. procedures can be equally intuitive. And Peter's feeling is no more certain for Peter than for Paul. It's a little confusing because their names are so similar. Rob for Peter to Paul, he's using the, it's typical stuff but it is yeah. but it is a good point right that this for him is at least the first steps to a positive ethics and politics or a positive psychology mm-hmm. where even if i can't feel your consciousness the way you, you do or experience it the way that you do in the bracket in the epoche it doesn't matter because for you just as well for me that doesn't enter in play if we still have a transcendental ego a pure ego then then that that argument loses its footing and perhaps it slips in the back door through the reduction, through the Husserlian epoche. And I think that's why he, he says that you got to get rid of the transcendental ego in order to get to the, the impersonal transcendental field. If you don't get there, if we don't get there, then we are stuck with these things like solipsism. We are stuck with these things where Freudian unconscious with its empty concepts, as he says, has a certain interpretive power that's at least as good as existential psychology, if not better. So I think that for him, you have to bracket the the ego from the, the, the ego can't be transcendental and constitutive. It can't be a condition of possibility of consciousness. Consciousness has to be causa sui. It has to be ex nihilo. It has to be self-limiting. 
And that's where you get to the impersonal transcendental field. And that's one of the things that Deleuze runs with and, uh, and tries to develop from. Even if he drops the consciousness itself altogether to get to another level, it's a different conversation. But And it is interesting that Sarah Richmond says herself in, the, in her introduction that one of the things that drops out later in Sartre's being in nothingness is this notion of the transcendental field. It has to transform into some other preoccupation because I don't think Sartre gives up on the notion of this impersonal dimension at the basis of consciousness. When you say that impersonal dimension, do you mean an aspect of yourself that cannot or is not fully known or understood sort of deal? He says it in a couple of ways where he says that on the one hand, I mean, I think of sincerity and being in nothingness. Okay, right? go ahead. Go ahead like, with that thought. And being in nothingness. And this is either after or maybe even before bad faith, where he talks about how it's essentially, it's a paradox, like mm-hmm. being sincere. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, how can you be sincere? You just are sincere. But there is this idea where you can act or say something sincerely, but how do you perform that? accurately because the way that you feel in a given moment may not be the way that you always feel or you may not know fully how you feel about a situation i know he expounds upon this a little more eloquently but that's kind of what i remember and that of course leads into the whole bad faith and all that stuff so i don't know if i'm going on a different track or if that's what you're pointing to it's the peter and paul situation you just quoted right Mm -hmm. where paul could say oh yes but i know myself and the paradox is what Sartre calls the fact that the ego is at once inward and transcendent. Its inwardness is being and knowing are the same because insofar as for consciousness in the reduction in the epoche appearance is being, there is a sense in which, yes, we can say that the ego is inward, but it has to be transcended at the same time because it is not the conditional possibility of my consciousness. It's Mm -hmm. kind of the same way. I think this is why sincerity doesn't work for Sartre. And in a sense, why we can never fully leave the realm of bad faith, even if we can reduce it. There's always a kernel left, but it's the fact that the fact that my ego depends on my experiences, but my experiences don't depend on my ego. Does that make Mm -hmm. sense? Mm -hmm. This is the paradox. I think this is this is the subtlety of Sartre's (laughs) argument and why the ego is still a transcendent object like the world. You know, it can be an ideal unity of, of consciousness, but it's not the real founding conditional possibility. It's not the transcendental. It's kind of a residue in the sense in which Deleuze and Guattari talk about the subject as a residue of the conjunctive syntheses. It's, it's a little residue for the share of enjoyment that falls its way. Speaking of bad faith, there is in the introduction something that I found a little bit baffling, actually. And and this is kind of a thing that people like try to do a lot with Sartre, where they're just like, okay, so that's bad faith. Well, what's good faith look like? And it's like, that's not a problem that needs to be solved. It's a false but, problem. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Let me let me just read and what 
Richmond writes here, Sartre struggles at several points in being in nothingness with the topic of self-knowledge. Famously, while he had no difficulty in characterizing the bad faith inherent in everyday self-understanding, he was obliged to postpone any account of good faith, claiming in a much quoted footnote that its description has no place here, which is like kind of funny. And it is kind of a sort of thing to do, like Ian's being in nothingness, where he's just like, I'm going to write about ethics next, guys. Just wait for it. And then that book never comes out. <laughs> this is like a common thing that people that people talk about with certain it's just like it's if you're asking for good faith what is good faith then you don't understand what you've kind of just described is the paradoxical nature of bad faith and that yes while you can reduce it basically according to Sartre, sincerity is impossible you can try to be the most you you can be but you're always playing at something because you're always in the gaze of the other you're always dealing with the look, at least yeah. in some sense or another, right? So we're always, in some sense, playing at something. Yeah, I don't know. You want to expound more on that? We didn't even really explain what bad faith is, which maybe if people aren't familiar, we could kind of get into that. I don't know how far off track we want to go here. <laughs> it is kind of a problem that he hasn't yet described in those terms, right? Mm -hmm. It does seem sure. like, it is, um, you know, it does seem like that that is something that we are kind of on the edges of discussing. I, I tried to put it in the terms that we find in this text, which was, well, no, sorry, I didn't. I try to use these other terms from being nothingness, which, which is this, this sort of tension between facticity and transcendence. But maybe one of the ways that he indicates the problem of bad faith is this notion that the ego is more of a practical problem than a theoretical problem. That once we have yes. sort of corrected Husserl's transcendental field and removed the ego from it or shown it to be transcendent and therefore has to be bracketed and we reach that transcendental, that impersonal or pre-personal yeah. transcendental field, then we can show the practical problem of the ego would be this way in which it masks spontaneity. Mm -hmm. And we ignore or we neglect or, or, or just in our everyday and our natural attitude, as Husserl might say, right? Just in our unreflected activity, we tend to ignore the fact that our ego is masking our spontaneity, right? That there is this whole of subjectivity that we're kind of covering over or warding off and we're not doing it consciously. And so we pretend like it's not an activity that's that's going on behind our backs. And therefore, we act as though our freedom is limited by a certain facticity, by a certain state of affairs, by the objective conditions we find ourselves in. And by doing so, we, you know, we reduce ourselves to a thing or we, we, we essentialize ourselves and, and negate the way in which we negotiate our existence and our, our meaning and our projects, right, as he might say. Mm. This is very much the way that I read Sterner, by the way. Okay, good. Along those lines. Did you want to read that Sterner quote? And Jack, I'll let you after this, maybe say a few more words on, on bad faith. The Sterner stuff could go into the bad faith because okay. it's almost like taking the states of mind, of consciousness as, as not imminent, taking those states as transcendent. So I'm happy, I'm mad. Those are, I guess those are bad examples because those are feelings, but I think Sterner is more so considered with identity, perhaps, mm -hmm. than, than states of being. But yeah, it'd be like taking to heart, oh, you know, I'm a, I'm this, I'm a human being, and 
as a transcendent essentialist category, for okay. example, would be living in a sort of bad faith. That's what Stirner's bad faith would, would be to like internalize and say, okay, so this real externalized label that is contingent and is historically contingent is a real transcendent category that I belong to. So you kind of pointed to how Stirner is dealing more with identity, whereas Sartre, you know, especially in ego, is more so dealing with these states of being. And, you know, he's working towards developing like an ontology. But I definitely mm-hmm. think that issue of identity is, is pervasive and this works to follow. So, I mean, most people know the bad faith example. There's a couple and being a nothingness, and I won't regale them all but the common one is the waiter so there's the waiter who is too good at being a waiter essentially he's too convincing you know he moves too perfectly and properly the tone of his voice is too waitery he's not a person being a waiter he has fully formed himself as a waiter right and that's kind of that's an example of bad faith. It may not even be the best one. There's the example of the woman. So it's like not, it's like a- and not embodying. It's almost like you have to embody by it. almost like the kind of Deleuze and Guattari way of take action, like do something. Don't just what does it represent? You know. So basically, with bad faith, it is an action and a way of performing at something, but it's also a convincing of myself. Yeah, that yeah, I yeah. am the thing, right? right? It's lying to oneself. And that's the big thing that a lot of people miss out on, believe it or not, is, is they think it's just the pretending to be something, but it's also the convincing of oneself and convincing thoroughly. You know what yeah. I mean? I'm a man. I'm so I'm so thoroughly <laughs> convinced that I'm a man that I have to behave in this, this self-deception. Exactly, exactly. And what Sartre's saying is like, who knows, dude, that should change. <laughs> like, you might be wrong. And, right. and that's the problem of identity is that it can always shift and any, you know, any platform, any ground that you build could very easily crumble with just major revelation about oneself. I don't think Sartre is like totally nihilistic about it or whatever, or pessimistic about it necessarily, but, you know, he does try to point to the project, the Taylor you mentioned, but I think that is, is, you know, largely fortuitous if we're taking Sartre's word to heart or, you know, I mean, that is my way of thinking is that to, I guess, personalize it a little bit. I mean, even for me in my mid twenties or so, that became a big thing for me was that was that maxim of know yourself and try to create a self which can be understood and kind of stand by these these ways of looking at myself. And then my life dramatically changed. And all of these things about me, which I was standing by and which I thought were me, were not me anymore. And I was like, right. well, you know, what do I do now? And I think that's just at least in some sense, I think that's just the cyclical nature of, of existence is, is trying to, I'm moving away from Sartre entirely here, but you know, <laughs> trying to create some ground for yourself, a space to move in, but not reducing yourself to facticity, right? Mm-hmm. Which again, is being a nothingness. So, but I mean, bad faith is really fascinating and it just gets reduced down a lot. So I did find the quote finally. This is how I kind of read Sterner or my interpretation more or less. The ego is nothing other than the concrete totality of states and actions that it supports. Doubtless, it is transcendent to all the states that it unifies, but not as an abstract X whose mission is merely to unify. 
It is rather the infinite totality of states and actions that never permits itself to be reduced to one action or one state. If one were looking for an analogy for the unreflected consciousness of what the ego is for, second-order consciousness, in my view, we should think rather of the world conceived as infinite synthetic totality of all things. That's Sterner? That's not Sartre? No, this is Sartre. Okay, I, I was like, mm, I'm but this is it's out of familiar. This is essentially more or less how I would read Sterner yes, as well. Yeah, I got you. Even the book, you know, the unique in its property, I think properties and states could perhaps have a certain equivalency there, right? right? Because the state of being whatever, you know, identity you want to tap into or or whatever, whatever transcendent property that you want to sort of attach your your uh, ego to for whatever reason. Again, I guess it goes back to anxiety, right? Having a transcendent identity diminishes anxiety. It does serve a function. I guess there's also one thing on bad faith that I didn't really mention is that for Sartre, we are all living in bad faith pretty much always. Maybe I did say that. I'm sorry. But um, I just wanted to, to make sure that was said is that when we were talking about the paradoxical nature of it, it's just something that at least in Sartre's philosophy and, and his work, it's not really something that can be escaped. Yeah. Kind of um, like a castration. Can be it's like <laughs> castration. It's like there are not all, there are not any that are not <laughs> living in bad faith. Yeah. And it's also <laughs> like consciousness and the fact that consciousness is constantly fleeing itself. As Sartre says, it's always fleeing itself and throwing itself out back out into the world. And it's only in these privileged moments of the phenomenological reduction and the bracketing that, that we can sort of do this kind of thought experiment, this phenomenological Hesserlian thought experiment, and try to bracket out what is transcendent from, from consciousness. It's almost as though insofar as consciousness is absolute, as he says, and insofar as it only as consciousness is only limits itself, nothing else limits it. This is kind of similar in this description of spontaneity and the ego's function of masking that spontaneity. It's very similar to how he talks about freedom, right? And how he will continue this notion of freedom. And it is precisely this very notion that, you know, freedom seemingly only, we could say it maybe as a stand-in, freedom is absolute in the same way. And freedom only limits itself. So there is this kind of notion that we can't be fully transcendent at all times. There is a sense in which, or Deleuze and Guattari might say, like deterritorializations come coupled with re-territorializations. There's all kinds of different ways to like put it in different terms, but there mm -hmm. is a sense in which transcendence needs a landing ground to have a factical state of affairs to ground itself and and that negotiation that lift off and that that landing ground to use that spatial metaphor i mean that is a kind of way of talking about projects and that i think is why sartre wants to move towards the critique of dialectical reason and start to talk about how this is done collectively and not just within an individual consciousness why he wants to talk about serialized groups versus groups in fusion and how one of the problems with class that he tries to isolate is this notion that class is still this serialized notion. And to negotiate groups and fusion, we, we have to kind of be sensitive to that, that fact, right? The class is this kind of transcendent category, or not that's not a good way to put it. It's this kind of category that can also be negotiated otherwise. It's why also in anti-Oedipus, the Liz and Guattari, the question of class 
more or less drops out unless they're describing capitalism as sort of reducing class to this one dimension as the negative of, of the castes and the yeah. tribes and the clans. There's and the, only one class, the bourgeoisie. I think we, that was from the last uh, anti I think I think we did. I, I didn't say That's that. Right. Maybe class itself doesn't really drop out, but class struggle, I think, uh, for Deleuze and Guattari is, is not the category that they focus on when they go back to Marx. And it certainly makes it, sense, yeah. And I think Sartre might agree with that a little bit, that class struggle has to be supplemented by these new ways of thinking about collectivities. Right. Pulling back to the text a little bit, uh, there's kind of two things relate to what you said and then what I was talking about with the bad faith and everything. I'll just read out this little passage here. This is on page 46, right at the bottom. He says, there is something that provokes anguish for each of us and thus grasping as it occurs, this tireless creation of existence of which we are not the creators. On this level, man has the impression of eluding himself ceaselessly, overflowing himself, surprising himself by a richness that is always unexpected. And it is, once again, the unconscious to which he gives the task of accounting for the way in which the me is thus surpassed by consciousness. So I guess there is a little bit of the unconscious there. And just a little bit more here, he says, in fact, the me can do nothing to master the spontaneity, since the will is an object that is constituted for and by this spontaneity. The will aims at states, feelings, or things, but it never turns back around onto consciousness. My question there is, where exactly does the will sit within this framework, right? Is that a part of the unconscious or what, what? I'm not sure. I think that that's a stand-in, that's the Kantian stand-in using this language of will. I know that- Desire. I know, right? I know that will has stand two- Stand-in for desire, perhaps? Yeah. I mean, the faculty of desire. Kant has two words for will, two different words. One is spontaneity, willkür, and the other is autonomy, which is vila. And I think that Sard is negotiating this question of freedom that he'll take up and being in nothingness with this notion of will, right? And so this question of of will always going outward and not necessarily right. reflecting back in. Yeah. I mean, I think that we see this, this trajectory. How many times does the word freedom come up? Does it only come up at the end with the example he gives of the young bride in the yeah, inverted? I think it's only okay, 15 oh. times, but 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 how Some many of that's that gonna is, be is Sarah's yeah. Yeah, I think a lot uh, of at it least really five. is. <laughs> like yeah, half of them think, are in one footnote. <laughs> I think a lot of it's at the end, yeah. So it, it comes up that one time. He uses it. Does he use it just yeah, that maybe once? maybe like once in the text. It in in Sartre's text, I mean. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. So he uses that. Page, consciousness uh, takes pride in its own spontaneity because it senses that it lies beyond freedom. And Sarah Richmond has a footnote about this will become a theme in being a nothingness, right? That freedom is sort of my own being it is still related to the spontaneity but there is a sense in which Sartre is revisiting this Kantian question of the negotiation of spontaneity and autonomy which could be another way of talking about bad faith right and it leads Sartre to this interesting non-Kantian or anti-Kantian claim that sort of suicide is like the height of my freedom Right. Which and I would it, agree with for sure. It's it's yeah. sort of, and I think that he, you have to like, I don't know if the words height is used, but it's sort of like the liminal case. Weakness keeps me alive. I've said, been saying that a lot. Yeah. You, you have said that. Fear yeah. keeps me alive. Yeah. 
man is born out of weakness dies by accident or something like that. <laughs> right, um, it's good. so fucking pessimistic. So, so, so taking Hell spontaneity yeah. and autonomy <laughs> in one go in one act to its limit is precisely suicide. That my immediate death. Yeah. Yeah. My immediate and, with it. Right. Yeah. My immediate death as the, as the shock to the, to the symbol as that, which can't be exchanged by the system. I think that this is, this is the same thing in the vertigo, right? This is, precisely what the vertigo stands in for as this notion of what's interesting for Kant though, is like, I have a moral duty to carry out moral duties. Suicide would conflict with my duty to perform moral duties. Therefore it's immoral. Therefore it is against <laughs> my duty. There's a logical consistency to that. Yeah, the yeah, problem yeah. is the problem is, is that duty is not habit. If you read it like Zupanchi treats Kant with Lacan, Duty is not something that I look on a list of things that are good, that are given already by culture, and I take them up and say, okay, I'm going to check this list off. Duty is something that I take on myself, that as a moral being, my duty is that which I choose. And so to a certain extent, there's a way in which you can read Kant a la Lacan and Zupanchich and, and agree with Sartre that, yes, suicide could become a moral duty, right? I mean... <laughs> we see this all the time in fucking action movies and heroes and stuff, right? Who sacrifice yeah. themselves for the greater good and all that shit. I mean, you can even find it in Horace, even if you meant it sarcastically, that dolce et decorum es pro patria mori, right? It is right, sweet and just to, to die for one's country. Mm. That kind of shit we've mm. had forever. So it does become this... But, but see, I think that kind of suicide is not what Sartre's talking about. Right, yeah. Then, exactly. Then you're, <clears throat> yes. Then you're, you're using There's some... a transcendental state. Right. right. It comes into play. That's our quote, by the way, is uh, every existing thing is born without reason, prolongs itself out of weakness and dies by chance. That's some Nietzschean shit. Yeah. This is totally stupid or whatever, but you were talking about con and duty and stuff. And I, I was just thinking about that meme where it's like utilitarians, when you ask them if the party is good and he's like in the club writing down, making a list of like pros and cons, pros and cons for, I have a quote here from Sartre, but it's almost opposite of what you're saying. So Uh I don't don't know that that's, that's okay. What What you have said sounds more correct to me because it's a way of looking into the face of freedom and your ability to do anything you want and saying, I'm going to choose. I mean, it it reminds me, at least in some sense, it's a little bit different, but uh, there's a book I read earlier this year called Neil's Line, which is really good. Mm -hmm. And he's- Oh, I saw that in in your book wrapped, yeah. Yeah, I love that book. It's incredible. So he grows up religious and, 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 you know, as he grows older, kind of becomes more bitter and, and tosses that away and is an atheist. And, and he dies at the end of the, well, spoiler alert, it's an old ass. Oh, no. He dies at the end of the book and it uh-huh. says he dies a beautiful death because he has a, a uh, like a, a religious figure come in and ask him if he wants to read his last rites. And his way of, of declaring complete opposition to God and religion and this thing which controls and creates everything is saying i don't need that i'm just gonna die completely alone and it's absolutely absurd and terrible but i will still die at least in some sense with dignity we're getting a little bit different but so i'll read this art quote i i don't even see where it's from unfortunately so who knows maybe this is 
The absurd man will not commit suicide. He wants to live without relinquishing any of his certainty, without a future, without hope, without illusions, and without resignations either. He stares at death with passionate attention, and this fascination liberates him. He experiences the divine irresponsibility of the condemned. This sounds like Camus. I don't even think this is It kind of does. It kind of does, but... Because the absurd man, I don't know if I've ever even read that from Sartre. From Sartre, yeah. Yeah. Like, yes, he uses the word absurd, but not in that way. Uh, this is... Also, the absurd man sounds strange to define a man as absurd. I, yeah, I think this is misattributed. My, it's my, possible. My bad, but that, no, that, it's fine. That, I mean, it's fine. You, it doesn't we'll, ring a bell to me. Either. We'll use I'm it like, as no. an apocryphal instance. And I mean, put it, an it, totally, it. it totally makes sense if you're trying to use the Sartrean notion of a radical freedom that asserts mm-hmm. itself yeah. in this way. Like that would certainly be, yeah, you would not be living in bad faith in that right. Yeah. by by taking ownership of your own, I don't know. I did not expect this to get into Baudrillard. That's kind of funny. Right. But yeah, I yeah. mean, the master-slave dialectic is all about that. Right. To some degree. Um, in what sense? There's no way that the slave can overtake the master. The slave cannot become a master, basically. Mm-hmm. So in the sense of weakness keeps me alive, my like, what's keeping the slave from killing the master is fear, right? Like they mm-hmm. could kill the master, but they're afraid, basically. Yeah, and, and what's on the line is, is death, right? Yeah. So the master-slave for... Hegel, it takes place by recognition that the slave recognizes the master's superiority when death is on the line, which is why Lacanians love to start, or it's your life or your freedom, right? And if you say, take my life, you lose both. So it goes by way of recognition, whereas with Nietzsche, the master-slave relationship goes by way of language, and it's, it's, it's a slightly different dialectic, but, you know, I think with I think that's kind of what Baudrillard's trying to 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 look at and and and, right. and maybe juxtapose together yeah, with yeah, this I notion so. that it's only insofar as like the capitalist system, for example, get, dotes out little bits of life to me, or you know, to me, or, or really little bits of death to me with my wage. It's my like immediate death that short circuits that relationship, and you know, I guess one can imagine just. There's something symbolic going on recently with with the pandemic and and workers and this whole thing like people just don't want to work anymore, right? There's something going <laughs> on. There. You can imagine a Sartrean Baudrillardian response where hundreds of thousands or millions of people just kill themselves. Here they're symbolically killing themselves by removing themselves from from underpaid, you know, the lowest form of of compensation for their labor. You know, there's something similar going on. I don't know. Is that fair to say, Coop? Have we kind of talked about this a little bit? Uh, I Just mean, I, some re- removal no, from. I, I think that your take is is right on for sure. Because yeah, it's like if workers weren't afraid and really wanted to take down capitalism, they could forfeit their life immediately. And yeah, if a large enough group of workers did that, the system would collapse. And there is that ability. There's nothing stopping us from doing it, at least in a sense. We do have that sort of existential freedom to make that choice, but right. we don't. It's interesting, right? Because on a one hand, the way I read that first chapter of Symbolic Exchange of Death is like capitalism and these the wage laborers, they're already a part of a kind of death cult. It's right. Like, it's like join the accelerated death cult, you know, take the Kool-Aid, 
I'm sure we'll find that quote. I, again, I could be misattributing this quote to Sartre, but I always thought about, I swear there's somewhere where Sartre kind of says, and I don't know the context, but this notion about suicide being within his system and his notion of freedom being one of the purest acts or the highest acts of a kind of freedom. Yeah, um, I'll look into it. I, I'm, it's <laughs> ringing a bell, but I would have to, I'll have to do some digging. It sounds very edgy either way. I don't <laughs> yeah, know. Right. I, yeah, exactly. I, we we got to figure out who is the edge lord that I found this <laughs> from because I didn't come up with it off the top of my head. That's not a part of my own spontaneity. You can see how a whole slew of moral philosophers would have to mobilize to or ethicists would mobilize to try to counteract. I gave the Kantian version. You can imagine some other versions that are basically I mean, that one only commits suicide in the depths of despair and depression and blah, blah, blah. And so like your suicide is actually not freedom. You are forced by the conditions, the objective conditions which you lived in, whether your mm-hmm. psychological trauma, your financial situation, your that's the kind of responses I saw when discussing this as an undergrad and I guess I was trying to be edgy or something Uh like in a really I was in a religious studies class and of course it's the whole thing about your body's a temple right you're all it's all alone from God to you (laughs) right so you have this responsibility to like take care of it and you know God gave you life and only God can take life which as you said you have to leave it a chance but there's a certain sense which like Sartre's notion of if I'm right about Sartre's quote about suicide, it's very similar to like the way Freud talks about the death drive, which isn't like I desire death. It's the very fact that death becomes as a drive is imminent to the organism. And it's the organism's way of dying, not this external chance that's imposed from outside, but this like, but the death drive is the organism finding its proper way to die. But that's like proper to it. Any other, um, any other things we want to, say about Sartre, we kind of got some fun stuff, but I feel like we've, we've discussed a lot of the things. I know yeah. we could go I was kind of interested in and, time. Yeah. It seems like time is sort of relevant to some extent. He hardly talks about it, but there is some Bergsonian yeah. shit in here too with duration and whatnot. I don't know if that bears any investigation, but it's kind of a corollary shit. He says a, lo- a couple of things about time. I mentioned earlier about this question of the state of hatred, the best I could say is like, at this moment, I hate, right? The magical link doesn't promise the actualization in the future of this potentiality of this of this state of hatred or this quality of hatred. But he does kind of mention Husserl and Husserl briefly mentioning that the only way this ideal unity of the ego works is obviously through duration, right? Through time. And that's kind of how Deleuze reads Khan, if not, you know, Khan himself is point being that it's only in time that there is any unity of the I think determination. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The states and shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sorry, I'm I'm actually still just looking for this <laughs> suicide quote. No, I mean, there's a great. few there's a few matches. Um I I found a PDF, so I'm just like uh Yeah kind of grazing through it i like this other little reference to is it rambo rambo about rambo i is an other i is an other yes i is an other i thought that was a that's a pretty you did mention this is kind of going back a bit but you you mentioned the the master slave dialectic and again this is 
moving forward with SART a little bit, but I brought up the look earlier. Yeah, yeah. And I always saw SART's the look as at least in some sense like a, an interpolation of the master slave dialectic. Yeah. There's yeah, a lot yeah. of similar stuff going on there. And it's uh, one of my favorite parts of being in nothingness for sure, because fuck it, I'll, I'll even tie this all the way back to, to hell as other people. Um, because I, <laughs> I know you mentioned, hell yeah. I know you mentioned how it sounds very pessimistic and, and nihilistic and edgy. And don't get me wrong. Sartre has a tendency towards He's that, got that in attitude. Yeah. However, I will say there's an interview that Sartre gives, I think in like the fifties where he's asked about that line. And, and he, he says that the interpretation that most people take of it is improper because they read it on its face as it is, which, you know, most people can't be blamed for that because they're not right. really dealing in depth with this philosophy. But what he's saying is not that other people are hellish, but he's referring to the look, which is for Sartre, it's this idea especially in death, you become reduced to facticity, yep. which is essentially a facticity is like an objective statement of oneself. And yeah. so when you die, you it's, it's almost like the Deleuze quote, trapped in the dream of the other. Right, right. You become this thing in everyone else's mind that you can't transcend and that you can't change. And so you in hell in the sense that you become this trap this thing yep. exactly exactly right in the eye of the other or the mind of the other the and you can no longer change yeah or like uh what is it would this be like a faciality type scenario black hole white walls of signification too yeah it would be like in the gaze you're the black hole of of consciousness is sort of covered over by the white wall and the white wall becomes the figure and the black hole becomes this masked ground. Right. And so like your, your spontaneity is frozen, right? Your spontaneity is cut yeah. off. Your, your becomings are clamped yeah. off. You're in right. the double bind. Yeah. 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 And this is why Deleuze himself tries to move beyond this this dialectic of recognition with the the look because it's still tied to the Lacanian and the Hegelian right. play of recognition yeah, yeah, yeah. and these other things not to say that there isn't something important going on right. here just that that's that's something that because he says it's, it's it's less the when he says that the face is the horror story when Deleuze and Guattari say that in the faciality plateau it's less the gaze and it's it's the gazeless eyes, right? It's it's the black hole of of consciousness and subjectivity that's that's terrifying, you know, because the gaze is merely sort of an effect of of that. It's merely it's not the structure, if you will. And this is why, like Deleuze, will go into this question of the of the structure, the other as structure, sort of the a priori other, rather than sort of empirical others. And Sartre tries to do this too in being nothingness, which is why it's a it's a treatise on ontology and not on epistemology. You know, Deleuze especially, I mean, like there's no way to say how important Sartre's work is for, for Deleuze. I just think that like Deleuze wants to move out of this philosophy that's still working within intentionality and phenomenology because for Deleuze, consciousness is first of all, not conscious of something, consciousness is something. And this, this little shift is part of his like critique of the Kantian transcendental 
with it being only concerned with the conditional possible experience, whereas it needs, if, if difference is to have a philosophy and not to be relegated to identity and representation and resemblance and analogy, then we need to seek like the conditions of real possibility. And I think that that's, again, why I keep saying like Deleuze finds in this essay in particular, this notion of a, of a um, impersonal transcendental field that's purified of the, the ego. He finds one of the biggest inspirations and motivations for his philosophy as a whole. It is interesting, though, that Deleuze tries to take Sartre and like reassert eminence in Sartre's philosophy when Sartre basically says that <laughs> yeah, what he finds yeah. in Husserl and what he loves about Husserl is the fact that it moves away from eminence. And he, <laughs> he says, he says, uh, he quotes Husserl, all consciousness is consciousness of something. This is in his little intentionality essay from mm-hmm. 1939, where he says, all, all consciousness is consciousness of something. No more is necessary to dispose of the effeminate philosophy of eminence where everything happens by compromise, by protoplasmic transformations, by a tepid cellular chemistry. The philosophy of transcendence throws us onto the highway in the midst of dangers under a dazzling light. So I think if, if you know, just to like postpone the conversation about Deleuze and Sartre, but like if, if one were to talk more about their relationship, that quote about the philosophy of eminence being a, um, an effeminate philosophy. That, that's something that really has to be tackled. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and in, in the Deleuze-Sartre essays and the Deleuze-Husserl essays I read, thinking about our conversation today, I didn't see anybody quoting that, that, little, uh, mm. that little dig. So I wonder how much that still, like Sartre, you know, the return of, of the repressed comes back, you know, because Deleuze <laughs> starts his reading, his very first essay is a Sartrean meditation on woman as this a priori other and the last thing he writes before his death is this you know pure eminence of life he starts and ends with eminence and i wonder if if sart's kind of like still there waiting for him in the background and like hey man what the fuck is this yeah you you can imagine sart calling deleuze deleuze's philosophy effeminate and deleuze maybe finding in that actually a compliment right it's it's hard to say yeah well there is the um, the anecdote about Deleuze like leaving halfway through Sartre's uh, existentialism as a mm. humanism speech, which like some say is just because that he was just bored or had something else to do, and others read that reads, as a critique. Yeah, as like a you know, like I don't I don't see why you need to tail you know your philosophy to humanism, which I, I would probably you know generally actually be in agreement with. I, I think mm-hmm. a lot of people see that. The flaws in that what is now an essay, but was originally a speech that I don't think he even wrote it. I think he was just talking offhand and maybe had some notes. But, but he does. Uh, he does put forward that that really uh, that one of the things that that is indicative of a lot of his philosophy is this notion about existence preceding essence, right? And mm-hmm, yeah. At least that's one of the big takeaways I have from reading that that essay and mm-hmm. um, that essay that speech there are some stakes in saying existentialism is a humanism because it is this, at least at the time, it was this way to promote the investigations and motivations propelling Sartre to the, the very top rank and to be taken seriously. In hindsight, we can, of course, with post-structuralism, post-humanism and all this shit, we can, we can <laughs> poo-poo him. Even like, for example, when he says, yeah. when he says that, because we were talking to David Roden last week, and when Sartre kind of says, like, well, my consciousness is not 
Peter's consciousness is not accessible to Paul and Paul's is there's there is a sense in which post-humanism kind of calls that into question I mean there is a possibility with different brain-to-brain mappings and obviously you could be dystopian and bored technologies other shit but there there is on the horizon this possibility of consciousnesses if not merging at least being in a a more uh, intuitive accessible position than it, than they are today but I would willingly again, become a Borg so oh you said you would willingly become a <laughs> oh, Borg fuck yeah dude you willingly hook me up with the nanobots. matrix hook me, gonna, up to, hook me up to the nanobots you're gonna enter the matrix willingly Hell yeah. yeah so I mean I, but on the other hand you know this notion that I as an other gets back to the, the point where when we say consciousness is mine, at the same time, there is there is still this distance, right? There is still this, it's still transcendent to the point where mm-hmm. it's only mine in a relative way. Right. Right. It's, mm. it's you know, it's not absolutely mine. I think, because consciousness being absolute to itself in the impersonal transcendental field, I think that's part of the ejection of the ego and therefore the ejection of the problem of solipsism just to get back to, to that too. To be fair too, I believe the formulation of exist precedes essence is in being in nothingness as well. A lot of the existentialism as a humanism is kind of just like simplifying and regurgitating most of being in nothingness. There's some of the greatest. I love it. I, I love that speech, that essay, whatever. I, I just am able to, like you said, kind of with hindsight, see some of the flaws in it. Mm-hmm. But you can also understand the motivation of what Sartre's trying to do and that he's really combating what is, you know, some of the negative like narratives that are being, you know, espoused about him and his philosophy. And then you have some fucking guy asking like a 30 page long question at the end. And it's just, I have more of a, a comment than a question. And then they don't shut the fuck up. Yeah. Fucking Marxists. It's so funny. There is a sense in which, you know, Hey, if you're if you don't have time to read an eight hundred my eight hundred page book, here come listen to my thirty minute lecture. You know, uh, yeah. When the book appeared, you know, there's famous stories about Deleuze reading it over a weekend and like just like consuming it and absorbing it and um, being fascinated by it. And one of the things that he says that he liked about it was this move away of a philosophy of interiority. What's interesting is like, you know, this is the subtle reading and paradoxical even reading of, of inwardness that Sartre talks about where the, the ego is on the one hand inward and on the other hand transcendent. And this is why it always kind of slides out of view. And that's a part of it's what he says. This isn't this isn't for lack of its intimacy, but due to the, the very structure of its intimacy. So is this interesting way of circumscribing interiority that Deleuze finds fascinating. And at the same time, I think that that's the, the interest. The question would be for Deleuze whether or not eminence has anything to do with what Sartre is calling effeminate here in that sense, because eminence then wouldn't be psychological interiority. My little, my little domain of consciousness in the back of my head where I have my like private theater you know, I think that for Sartre, that's the problem with that the transcendental ego poses for him, because if I have my little private theater in the back of my head, then I'm back in idealism. I'm no better than Kant and I'm out of the world of things. I'm out of the world of men. I am removed from struggle. I'm back in the realm of Aristotelian 
contemplation <laughs> and remove from the practical problems of the world, which I assume in 37, he's very aware that war is on the horizon. And so like these practical questions are obviously more important there than, than in times of, of peace and decadence and exhaustion and all that shit. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. My thing with like anytime, you know, someone's like, where do I begin with Sartre? Existentialism as a humanism would probably be the first thing I would say yeah. because yeah. of its accessibility, its simplicity, and its and its brevity as well. You know, from there, I think, you know, transcendence of the ego is really good in terms of prepping for being in nothingness. Oh, yeah. Because it introduces a lot of these major ideas within the work. Um, and then usually like nausea is probably pretty good too. But nausea is like a little bit draining. It's a it's not even a long book, but it, it really feels like it at times. <laughs> There's a lot of great passages in it, but it, it kind of drags. What I like about it is in nausea, however flawed of a narrative it may be, however draining it may be, as you said, it's the way of articulating the psychedelic states that he was that he had as an after effect of taking mescaline right he had a very rare almost like allergic reaction where he would have we, we might call them flashbacks or we might even just call them you know after the fact it's not even flashbacks yeah flashback has to be like understood in the in the broadest most acute sense because it would be like he were tripping again right so he's he's running down the champs-elysees you know, he's running down Main Street of Paris being chased by these giant crabs and shit when he would have these intermittent trips, which you can imagine prepping for a psychedelic experience, getting your rest, your B vitamins, you're in the, a good place, whatever. And you have your little eight hours and, you know, it's, it's wonderful. It's nice. Everything's controlled. But if just randomly for the next year, however intermittently, you're, you're suddenly in another psychedelic state without consent, without trying to that kind of shit it would be the kind of terrifying motivations to think through the really terrifying aspect of anxiety and and freedom and this notion that like we're anxious precisely because we're responsible for ourselves and we mm -hmm. are in in the end of the day like that kind of void as you said the call of the void that can dawn on us in any moment. So yeah, when he's when he's in the when he's on the train and he and and the the seats look like what is it inside out donkey stomachs and he's Something looking bizarre. at yeah. he's looking at the tree and the tree is too much tree it's too much being and it just overwhelms his his consciousness. Those are two examples of psychedelic states, right, where our consciousness is completely like absorbed in this being that. Instead of us absorbing the being and integrating it into us, our consciousness is like absorbed in this in this black hole of being. And that that way of describing it gives a kind of literary life and flair to phenomenology that it hadn't really had. And what I take it to mean, too, is is that being like the major theme of the book is you have the main character of Nausea, uh, Rocantan, who's trying to write a history of some, you know, dead king or emperor, whoever it was. And he's done all this research, but he can't write the book because he can't figure out who the man is. He can't <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's great. And then Rocantan realizes he can't figure himself out. 
He doesn't know who he is. And so when he looks at the tree, it might be too much tree or he doesn't. Then he looks at the chair and the train and he's like, that's not a chair to me anymore. And the way I always related it back was my very brief and unfinished reading of Hegel, which was like the sensuousness stuff, which is this, the reductive way of putting it is almost like when you examine something so much that it then becomes unfamiliar. So almost like if you say a word over and over, it feels funny in your mouth, right? Like you say the same word and you're just like, what is that? And that again, kind of is one of those like fundamental questions of philosophy, blah, blah, blah. The way he expresses it, like you said, with this psychedelic, Mm -hmm. this very vivid imaginative way is so surreal. And yeah, those passages are, are fantastic. And there's lots of parts of the book that I love, but I love that the meta aspect of it, where obviously Rocantan is a stand-in for Sartre, and you have <laughs> these like three depths of people trying to figure themselves out. And, and kind of what maybe not even the resolution of the book is, because I don't really know that it tries to have a resolution, but there isn't, right. is one is he recognizes that that we reduce ourselves in the sense of creating narratives about ourselves. And that's what he was trying to accomplish with the person Rocantan is writing about. But then, of course, the book ends with with the character losing himself in music. He's just lost in, in, in the enjoyment of something else. And that's the resolution or the solution that Sartre tries to bring to the table, but I think he doesn't really feel fully fulfilled by that, at least from what I remember uh reading when he talks about the work in, in uh, retrospect. We're always our worst critics. Also, my, always uh, hurt my, the one you love the most. We got to some of the, some of the big issues and, and at least early start, and we connected up, you know, the transcendence of the ego to being in nothingness and really talked about some of these, some of these interesting things. We'll have to leave the listener in abeyance for this question of suicide and whether or not Sartre is, is as edgy as I made him out to be. Uh, maybe we'll figure that out uh, at some point in the future. But yeah, Jack, it's, it's been great having you back on. It's always good to talk to you about this stuff. You know, and, and, and relating it to, to Sterner is, is cool. And, and it's going to be helpful, Coop, because you're going to have to hold my hand with the, with the, the ego and its hyper state for next week. So uh, yeah, hopefully the start stuff prepared us in a way. It, it does seem like a, a nice bridge to some of the stuff we're going to be doing next week. So there's, there's a yeah. lot of different layers that are being It'll satisfied. at least be a good uh, foil, perhaps, for that discussion. Elliot yeah, can man. articulate a lot of this better than I can, too. So. Well, <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, we had a lot of fun. Is there? A, do you want to plug your, your stuff again before we let you go? Thanks for having me on. This was indeed a blast. And I would mm-hmm. be happy to talk start anytime again. You know, being in nothingness, there's a lot to to dig into there. So maybe in the future. But yeah, uh, if you want to follow me anywhere, the best place is probably Twitter. My at is is uh, Jack Paul Sart, all one word. Or you can follow my music, which is uh, always other, except for the W is two V's. And uh, I've got a new song coming out on the 31st of this month. So that's coming soon. Good way to start the new year. Hopefully. <laughs> All right, Jack. Well, we're, we'll let you go. Enjoy the rest of your evening, and uh, we'll 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 talk to you. We'll talk to you on the Twitter sphere. Sounds good, man. Thank you guys again. It was a blast. Absolutely. All right, thanks, Jack. Thanks. Thanks for joining us.
And that will wrap up this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. The very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including your ultimate form of singularity, which is This is a typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Thomas people as in a block work orange.